Am I on? Am I good? Thank you. <clears throat> um, I had lunch yesterday with Chris. No, I've got my days mixed up. Two days ago. <laughs> um, I promised him that I would do my best to make sure that when he came back next week, I'll be preaching at another church, that there would be more than two people here, that I wouldn't scare that many away. He said that was going to be the measuring stick on whether or not I was good enough to do this. So um, we'll see how things go. Uh, while he and Robin are uh, on their way back from the wedding, um, it just occurred to me this morning, I came here, we were having, yes, a few technical issues. Um, and last week, we were sort of encumbered by sickness as well. For those of us that were here, uh, we were missing some, some key people. But I, I don't want to embarrass uh, Kirsten Moran or Jane, but they, they did an amazing job accompanying worship last week. And it was beautiful. It was breathtaking. It really, really was. And it reminded me that sometimes we put our worship of God in a human box. We try to measure it up that way. And today, I was reminded again that, yes, the screen did not work, and um, we've determined that you can put Teresa on any piano and just let her go. And it's, it's beautiful because we are worshiping God, and it was just an amazing thing. So let, let me start with a, a prayer before we get going here. Father, we are here to worship you. End of story. Father, we love you. And we thank you. I thank you for this church body. I thank you for these people that I have uh, gotten a chance to get to know so well to, to watch how they love on each other and how they love you. God, I just pray right now that it's not my words, but your words. And more importantly, God, that it's not my truth, but it's your truth. Lord, that you will give us hearts to discern what you would have for us in this message and that we would leave here today with a fresh perspective on our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. In November of 2015, there's an organization called Pew Research, and they released a report that showed that the average evangelical church sees what they call as active participation in three out of every ten attendees. Three out of every ten on average. Thirty percent. That number kind of shocked me a little bit. But I've grown up in a church, and I've kind of seen a little bit of that. I, I went home reading, doing that research as I was preparing this lesson today. And I talked to my wife Angie about it, because uh, many of you know she's the kids' ministry director at Two Rivers Church. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of perspective, Two Rivers sees probably more than 2,000 people in a given weekend. And Angie's reply to that number was, that seems a little high. A little high. Well, she wasn't wrong. That same research says that the larger the church body, the more that number goes down. Not up. Down. Why is that? Well, Chris and I have talked about this, and I contend that the larger the church body, the easier it is to hide, right? What is the old saying? There is safety in numbers, isn't there? So we can kind of fade into the woodwork. See, here, you should feel good about yourself because a church body like this, nobody hides, and our percentage is probably higher 
than everybody else's, right? I walked in today, I look up in the crow's nest, and I saw Zane up there who just joined the church, and he's already up there. We put him to work. You know, well, welcome. Here's a job for you, right? So I, I think that it's important to remember that, you know, the percentages are um, definitely fluid there, and the averages are um, unique. But it got me thinking about something. Right now, this time of year is what? Football time in East Tennessee. On Saturdays, everybody's decked out in what color? Orange, right? Unless you want to get your car keyed, you, you, you wear orange on Saturday, don't you? I learned that lesson when we moved up here. I'm like, wow, everybody's into their orange, okay? Everybody loves their game. A couple weeks ago, after church confession, Pastor Chris was up here. I walked up, and a couple of the other guys walked up, and the question was, did you see the game? Nobody said, what game? Because that's a good way to start an argument. Nobody says that. Nobody asks, what game? Sure, I saw the game. Did you see the game? Yeah, I saw the game too. What did you think about the game? Everybody was talking about the game. There were many games that day, but we were talking about the game. And it occurred to me that, that our society, we've sort of gotten comfortable with being a spectator sports society. What do we do on Saturday? We put on the orange, don't we? Okay? Now, I would contend that if the best place to watch a football game is home, in front of my TV, on my couch, with my family, I've got my own food, I've got my dog, right? Everything's good. Nobody's yelling. But, but the bravest among us do what? They go down to Nayland Stadium to watch the game because they say there's no beating the energy of the live sports experience. People love it. The, the most diehard fans will also put on a jersey, won't they? They'll put on a replica jersey with their favorite player's number and go to the stadium. So here's a question. Have you ever asked yourself this, especially if you're somebody that does this? Have you ever been concerned at least for half a second that because you have a jersey on and you're in that stadium, at some point the coach might turn around to you and say, hey, uh, I need you at left tackle? No. Because that's not our job as spectators. Our job is to watch. There's enough cost in watching, right? But if you really want to play, there's a bigger cost. Some of us aren't able to do that anymore. You know, these young men that get together and uh, all the people that are involved. But there is a bigger cost for them to play the game itself. So here's where I'm going with this. Have we as a society transferred that same thinking to our walk with Jesus? Are we content to just be spectator Christians? Because I've never been to a church that issues foam fingers so that we can all just, yeah, I'm good back here in the back, right? No. So we're going to look at three interactions today in one passage of the Gospel of Luke. I was excited to be preaching on Luke because it's my favorite gospel. I don't know if that's, if that's right for, for a preacher to say I have a favorite gospel, but I, I do, I like Luke because Luke started out as a physician and Luke is a very detail-oriented person. He's the only one that starts out his gospel with a mission statement. 
he starts and he says, I'm going to make an ordered account. He's also the only gospel writer to write a sequel, which is kind of cool, right? He wrote Acts. We tend to forget that sometimes because Acts, John is in between Luke and Acts, but Luke wrote a sequel. So he was very, very detail-oriented, and I can appreciate that. I'm sort of a detail-oriented guy myself. So today, what we're going to be looking at is that there is a real cost to following Jesus. So if you have your Bible handy, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. We're going to start in 57. And this is what the, my translation, the ESV, reads it like this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me, he being Jesus there. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back, who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Jesus wasn't pulling any punches in his replies to these three potential followers. When I first read this passage, it, it almost sounded like they had caught Jesus on a bad day or something. Maybe he hadn't had his coffee that morning. I, I don't know. But it seemed like he just wasn't pulling any punches. But let me break it down for you exactly what Jesus is saying in each of these instances here. Now, as a quick reminder, just so you don't have to go back and try to speed read through the, the Gospel of Luke to get to this point. Jesus has already sent out the 12 apostles. They've returned after preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Jesus then proceeds to feed the 5,000, which if, if you've done any study on that, you know it was probably quite a bit more than 5,000 because they only really ever accounted for the adult men. But when you factor in the families, it was significantly more than that. He fed them with five loaves and two fish. An amazing miracle. Peter, John, and James have witnessed the transfiguration where they've seen Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. In Luke 9.51, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What's this mean? This means that he's, this speaks to a determination at this point. Jesus is ready to complete his mission. He is determined to get to Jerusalem. There's similar language in Isaiah 50, verse 7. It, it reads like this. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. See, it indicates a willingness to, to, to be very determined, to move forward with that determination. So we find Jesus at this point. He's passing through the land of Samaria, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. So the first person that Jesus has an encounter with here, as they were going along the road, again, to Jerusalem, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I love the excitement of this first person. I just sort of can feel it when I'm reading it. I mean, don't you feel like this, this individual had to be really excited about something to say, I will follow you wherever you go. He knows where he's going, but I'll follow you wherever you go, right? I, I, I've encountered that sort of excitement with my kids in the past. Dad, I, I'll wash, I'll clean my room for a month if you'll do so-and-so, right? That's that kind of language. It's, it's, it's interesting, that excitement. Now, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, they describe this particular individual. Matthew describes him as a scribe. He's very specific about that. Now, this, a scribe um, is a professional interpretive expert on the Torah or on the law. He's basically an attorney. A scribe um, was often grouped with Pharisees. And there was probably some overlap. There were probably some Pharisees that were scribes and some scribes that were Pharisees. But Pharisees were theological and scribes were legal. It was all about the legal for them. So the, um, what we have here is Jesus says in Matthew 23, 2, I found very interesting about scribes. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. It's quite possible that this scribe, this follower of the law, was just used to putting more emphasis on words than on actions. He says, I will follow you, right? But I don't know that he quite understands what the cost of following Jesus really is. See, he knows that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. We've already established that. And there had to be, at some point, some recognition that this might be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He's been healing people. He's been performing miracles. There's been whispers. And to them, the Messiah, they had a certain idea of what the Messiah was. Pastor Chris talked about this last week in his sermon. They were acquainted with the prophecies. And for them, the Messiah was an earthly king, a glorious earthly king, who was going to deliver them from their Roman oppressors, and he was going to form once again a great and independent Jewish kingdom. If you remember the wise men who came from the east seeking the newborn Jesus, they inquired at Jerusalem in Matthew 2, 1 through 2, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So if this is the Messiah, he's the new king. What a great opportunity to get in on the ground floor of a new kingdom right now. I'll follow you anywhere you go. If you're going to be the king. I think this guy was a bit of an opportunist. See, his excitement kind of reminds me of the excitement that I've experienced myself starting what I would call a new adventure and share a story with you about four years ago. I decided to join a health club. I have to confess it was like in early January, so you can probably figure out why that was. But I wanted to get in shape, so I decided this place was close to my office. I would go there in the morning, every morning, at, you know, before the chickens were up. I'd, I'd get there, I'd, I'd work out, and then I'd go to work, and I'd, be, I'd do great. 
I mean, it'd be fantastic. I was so excited. I signed up. I was ready. My first day, I got there, and the parking lot was packed. There was no parking. I had to park like a block away. So I get into the club. There's no room in the locker room. There's no available lockers anywhere. Finally get changed, get out there, and all the machines are taken. All the treadmills, everything. So you had to wait and wait. And I, I was very frustrated, very disappointed. So I remember sitting there, kind of being frustrated, kind of waiting. You know, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And the gym owner, a very nice man, I think he saw me. I think he sort of saw the frustration. So he came up to me and he said, how's it going? I said, well, to be honest, it's not quite what I expected. It's, it's a little crazy here today. And he looked around. I'll never forget this. He looked around to make sure a lot of people couldn't hear him. And he leaned in real close and he said, give it a couple of weeks. This place will be empty. He was right. You know, statistically speaking, 80% of New Year's resolutions fail by February. He knew that. He knew that the majority of these people were not willing to pay the cost for the reward that they wanted. In case you're wondering, I think I lasted until April. So Jesus answers him in a unique way. This man who says, I will follow you anywhere. Jesus says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And at first I thought that was kind of an odd answer for that question or for that statement. But, and, I, and I want you to, to, to make sure you write this down because I don't want you to get the wrong impression. This is not a declaration that all of us who follow Jesus are meant to be homeless. Please don't interpret it that way. Jesus is not saying give up your home. But what do our homes represent to us? I don't know about you, but my home is a comfort zone. It's a safe place. When I've had a particularly rough day, I can't wait to get home. I get home from work, I just want to relax. That's where I can relax. If I go on a business trip somewhere, I can't wait to get home, to sleep in my bed, to sit on my couch, to see my family, to eat my food, right? My, 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 my. It sounds terribly selfish, doesn't it? But that's what our homes are. Our homes are our comfort zones. They are our safe places. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Son of Man has no safe place. See, he knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. And what Jesus is saying to us is that if you truly wish to follow him, you've got to be willing to step out of your comfort zone. Whatever that looks like for you. Is that talking to somebody that you'd rather not talk to? Is it maybe volunteering at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or someplace that, that maybe you're a little concerned about and makes you uncomfortable? If you're a student, is it maybe sitting down in the lunchroom next to somebody who's not very popular because of what it might do to your reputation? But you have to be ready to step out of your comfort zone. 
Now to the next person, Jesus says this. Jesus says to him, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So first we have to address culturally what's going on, because that sounds horrible. I can't go bury my father first? Well, see, in ancient Jewish custom, your obligation to bury your father was a year-long obligation, typically. So what that meant was you had to be available for when the time came that your father passed, you would be in charge of all the arrangements for the burial, and then you would wait a year, and then you would collect the bones from the burial and put them what, in what was called an ossuary box. This was a cultural thing. So we can assume because this individual is out walking with Jesus and the mass of people, that his father is not dead yet, or he would already be doing this. So what he's saying is, I have this obligation that I have to do. And Jesus is pointing out to him about priorities. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. It refers to the spiritually dead. See, another cost of following Jesus is putting him above every other obligation. The Bible teaches us to honor our father and mother. That's in Exodus 20.12. But it's also clear that when we are in Christ, our physical family has to take a backseat to our spiritual family. John states in his gospel, John, in John 1.12-13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, this doesn't mean that you should never comply to your other obligations. It means that you should do everything in obedience to Jesus. Jesus should be our top priority. So how should this man have responded when Jesus said, follow me? Well, let's contrast his response to this account in Mark 1, 16 through 20. You're all very familiar with this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, what? Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately it says, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. In Luke 5, 27 through 28, we read this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, again, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. See, when Jesus called, their priorities radically changed. James and John are noted as leaving their own earthly father in the boat. They got up and left. Where are your priorities? Where are your obligations? 
Our third contestant in this passage in Luke, he sounds startlingly familiar to me in the language that he uses. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... How many have ever encountered that magic word before? I was going to do that for you, Dad, but... I'm sorry I was late to work, but... You know, we've encountered that before. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' response here seems a little cold to me. You can't even go and say goodbye to your family? I'm reminded of an incident that happened at our house about three or four years ago. We put in an above-ground pool in our backyard. And then we had somebody come and put a deck on the pool so that we would have a place to sort of lounge and dry off. And we have this walkway that connects the existing house deck to the pool deck. It essentially became a launching pad. So uh, Ian could run straight down and leap into the pool. And it was funny because the, the guy that built the pool deck and, and the um, we were standing there discussing the build afterward. He said, yeah, I'm really proud of this walkway. And as he said that, Ian went flying by and did a cannonball and he looked at Ian he looked at me and he said I hadn't thought about that but it's okay I mean that's that's kind of what they did but one day Ian and a couple of his friends were in the pool and I happened to look outside one of his friends who's got a bit of a daredevil streak to him was not on the pool deck he was actually on the railing of the pool deck he had gotten up on this you know two by two by eight board and he was crouched down getting ready to leap into four feet of water. I mean, you know, maybe four and a half feet. Now, he could just as easily have fallen sideways, gone right off into the yard and broken something or hurt something. So, me being me, I opened the back door, I walked down there. By then, they were all in the pool laughing about it. And I just calmly walked up and I said, if I see any one of you do that again, nobody will ever swim in this pool ever again. I turned around and I started to walk away and I heard Ian's friend whisper to him, wow, your dad is mean. Now I pride myself as a dad as always being the guy that follows through. If I say I'm going to do something, you can take that to the bank. That's just how my kids have been raised. And so he knew I was serious when I said, if I see anybody up there again, there will be no more swimming in this pool. I don't know what we'll do with it but you won't be swimming in it anymore. But the point was, I wasn't trying to be mean. And the point was, Jesus isn't trying to be mean here either. Sometimes the intention is to get your attention. So Jesus says to him, he says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me go say farewell to those at my home. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Hmm. He models, actually, something very interesting here. In Matthew 12, 46 through 50, this goes back to the whole spiritual family idea. In Matthew 12, 46 through 50, we read, while he was still speaking to the people, 
Behold his mother and his brothers, some translations say his brother's ancestors, stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, this looking back that Jesus is talking about to this person in Luke is essentially leaving yourself a safety net. You know, on the off chance that this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out, I'm going to keep an eye on what I got. If this whole following Jesus thing doesn't end up looking the way I think it's going to look, I've got a spoiler for you if you haven't figured it out. It's not going to. I don't know that I've ever met a Christian that said to me, you know, this whole following Jesus thing, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. But when it comes to having a safety net, it just doesn't work. He uses this example of no one who puts their hand to the plow. Has anybody here ever plowed before? I've never plowed. I've cut the grass before. I don't know that it's quite the same thing. But what he's saying is, you know, if you're pushing the plow, you're looking forward. So if you look back, it could, you could veer very easily. Well, what if you just veered just a little bit? I wasn't sure. So I started doing a little bit of research because that's what I do. So I'm going to give you a modern example. All right. Uh, I know that uh, we have a couple people here that fly. Um, I know Doug, uh, Doug's not here today, but Doug flies. All right, so a modern airplane, compass on an airplane. You know if that compass is off by one degree, just one degree, and you're flying from JFK in New York to LAX in Los Angeles, by the time you get to LAX, you would be 50 miles off course, just from one degree. If you decided to fly around the equator and you were one degree off course when you started, you'd be 500 miles off course by the time you got to your destination by one degree. Jesus understood this. All my math whiz kids and youth group, they understand this. It's about that angle, but it's about if you're not looking forward and paying attention to where God is sending you, if you're looking back here, just to double check on that safety net that you have, you could veer even one degree and it could go horribly off somewhere where you don't intend to go. I have a confession. This is going to sound odd. I'm not a gambler. That should probably make you feel better since I'm going into this line of work. Uh, but I am familiar with the game of poker. Because when I was a child, my dad taught me and all my uh, siblings how to play. This is before the days of video games. And um, I think it was a way for him to get all of our butterscotch candies away from us. <laughs> because that's what we used to bet with, you know. Um, but I do understand that sort of the basics of poker. And I've seen it like portrayed in television and movies. We've all seen it. And there's one very common scene when people are playing, somebody's playing poker, and they are so sure that what they have in their hand is going to satisfy everything that they need. They take everything they have in front of them, 
they push it into the center of the table and they say, I'm what? I'm all in. I am all in. It's either this or nothing. There's no safety net. It's this or the game's over. See, what Jesus is telling this third person here is that if you want to follow him, you've got to be willing to go all in. He teaches in Matthew 13, 44, he gives us this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. The man in this, in this story is so sure that that treasure is it. It's going to solve everything. That he goes out and he sells everything he has. He gets rid of his safety net. He's all in. And how does he do it? It says, does it with joy. Now, interestingly, Luke, I said, was a very detail-oriented person, but Luke does not tell us what happens with these three people that he records. But these events are recorded right before Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. In Luke 10.2, we read this. And I believe that this was spoken earlier during worship as well, or something similar. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's almost as if this account of the three would-be followers is some sort of vetting process, trying to decide who he's going to send and who he's not. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Three out of every ten attendees are active. Thirty percent of people in the evangelical church, on average, we can feel pretty good about ourselves here, but thirty percent are active participants. And Jesus said how long ago the laborers are few? Amazing. So what are the questions we have to ask ourselves today when we think about this? Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone? Is it time to start looking outside of what you're used to, what makes you okay? Are you willing to put obedience to Jesus before every other obligation? Trusting that Jesus is going to push you in an area that doesn't honor his biblical truth. It's still his truth. But we have to trust that what Jesus tells us to do is going to be the right thing. And finally, are you willing to go all in? What kind of heart do you have right now? This week, I know uh, many of you um, spend a lot of time devotional time and prayer time and that's one of the things about this church body that, that I absolutely love so my my request to you this week first of all my second request my first is to show up next week so Chris isn't freaked out anymore. 
But my second request is this. In your devotion time this week, I want you to ask our Lord to speak to you and show you how you are measuring up in these three areas. I have this real sense, and I just have a few minutes left here, but I have this real sense that there's a danger in getting too comfortable, and I'm guilty of it. I came in here, I was welcomed with open arms. It's been several months now, and I'm comfortable here. I like it here. I like it the way it is here. And the Lord is saying to me, but that is not what I have called all of you to do. That is not the commission. The commission is to go out into this community. The commission is to make an impact in this community. And I don't know what that looks like, and I'm not telling all of you that I do. But the truth is, is that if, if we're spending too much time in our comfort zone, then we're not getting equipped and we're not doing what Jesus has called us to do. So ask yourself this week, Lord, where would you have me step out in a new way? Where would you ask me to be obedient where I haven't been obedient before? Or what obligation am I putting in front of you? And Father, am I really going all in? Or is there something I'm holding back? Is there a safety net that's keeping me from really doing what I should do? Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for sometimes the hard message for a stirring in our hearts, for your truth, because your truth never changes. Lord, I thank you for these people, for this body, for this passion here, these folks that I have grown to be very, very fond of, because I see how they love each other, I see how they love you. Lord, would you speak to us in a new way this week and help us to know how you would have us move forward from this point. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.